Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his, when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your people, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for, the, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Sovereign God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray expectantly that you would show us Christ. We pray expectantly that you would help us to see who Jesus is, that you would help us to see his ministry, and Lord, that you would help us to respond with faithfulness and with worship. Lord, we pray that you would shine the light of Christ before our eyes this morning. Lord, let the light of Christ shine into our hearts. And help us to respond with worship and with adoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the main point of our passage this morning is essentially this. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. 
And that's really the central message of the book of Hebrews as well, the book of Hebrews that we're going to be studying in our Bible study. Again, the book of Hebrews can be summed up like this. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than Moses. The priesthood of Jesus is greater than Aaron's priesthood. His new covenant is better than the old covenant. His blood is better than the, than the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus is greater than everything. And Jesus is greater than you too. In Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10, the author speaks of how the sacrifices of the ceremonial law serve as a mere shadow of what is to come. He talks about how it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 4, he talks about how we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 10, the ceremonial law played a part in God's redemptive plan, but it was only a supporting role. In fact, all of the law of God plays only a supporting role in God's redemptive plan. The lead role belongs solely to God. God the Father gave His Son. God the Son willingly lived and died and rose again. God the Spirit empowered His ministry and applies all of his work to us. All three members of the Trinity, one God in three persons, one will working out God's plan of redemption for all of God's people for all time. Each member of the Trinity working in perfect harmony to apply salvation to the elect. In our passage this morning, all three members of the Trinity are present each one working to fulfill God's plan of redemption. The focus here is on Jesus Christ, God the Son in human flesh. In His incarnation, in His incarnation, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, all of it, ceremonial, civil, and moral. He fulfilled all of it for us. The ceremonial laws are mentioned repeatedly in this passage, but again, it's only here in a supporting role. The importance of the ceremonial law, the importance of it all, is how it points to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the same is true of the people in this passage. Mary and Joseph proved to be faithful as they fulfill the law's requirements concerning Jesus. Then we have the voices of two faithful followers of God added to the angels and the shepherds bearing testimony of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The Lord is faithful to fulfill his, to fulfill his promises to his people in sending his Messiah. And his people respond to and his people respond with worship and faithfully bear testimony to the Lord's Messiah. But again, make no mistake. It's all about Jesus. The focus is on Him. Others seem to be carrying the action in this narrative. They're, they're the ones who, who are, are doing what's done. They're the, one who is, the ones who are speaking. But the human actors are merely carrying out God's will. 
The ones speaking and operating in this passage, Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna, have their importance in the way that they relate to Jesus. Simeon and Anna, like Mary and Joseph, are simple, faithful people. But Simeon and Anna are only mentioned here in this this passage, the only place in all the Bible where their, their names are mentioned. But their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Their faithfulness and their worship points to Jesus. Again, it's all about Him. We're going to see further parallels as we've seen so far in the, the birth narrative with the narrative of, of John the Baptist's birth. But, but again, it's the contrasts that speak most loudly. Remember back when, when Jane and I were getting to know each other. It was actually um, her first visit here in Kelowna. And we went cycling at Mission Creek. And, and we, stopped, we stopped on the bridge to look at the fall colors and we bumped into somebody that I knew who, who was a, a photographer, and she offered to take some photos of us. And while my, my friend was, was snapping the photos on the bridge, a, a couple of tourists came by, and, and they asked us, uh, excuse me, are you someone significant? <laughs> and I thought about it for a second, I said, well, well, yes, I am. Because my Savior died for my sins. Now, we, we probably, in her mind, looks significant because I was wearing my, my Southern Seminary cycling jer- jersey. It's quite bright and loud. And, and Jane probably looks significant because she's Jane. But, and you don't need to tell her that I said that. But she's, anyway. So, but, 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 but the fact that, that she was saying this was, this one was actually saying more than she even realized. When, when she asked this question, are you someone significant? Of course she meant, are you someone famous? Are, are you important? Now, she didn't mean it that way, but, but the implication is if you're not famous, you're not important. Well, A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And following from that, I would suggest that, that the most important thing that you do is respond to God. How do you respond to God? Do you respond with, with faithfulness, with worship? Or do you respond with sin and self-centeredness? Many Hollywood actors waltz through real life as though it's a movie and everyone else is just an extra, as part of the supporting cast in their lives. Do you do that? Do you go through life thinking that you are the star of your own story and everyone else is just part of the supporting cast? Do you view God as though he is part of your supporting cast? How much of what you focus on, how much of what you do, your desires, your plans, your comforts, are are really all about you, not about God? Well, in our passage this morning, everything and everyone finds its importance in its relationship to God. The ceremonial law and all of the people involved in this passage as they they work to fulfill the ceremonial law find their importance in their relationship to Jesus Christ. 
So first we're going to see in verses 21 to 24, Mary's purification. Then we're going to see in verses 25 to 35, Simon's declaration. Then in verses 36 to 38, Anna's thanksgiving. And finally, in verses 39 and 40, the family's return. And all of these people are doing stuff, but again, it's not about them. It all points to Jesus. Jesus is greater. So first of all, Mary's purification, verses 21 to 24. Our passage begins eight days after the birth of Jesus, when he was circumcised according to the ceremonial law, Genesis 17:12. Now remember, John the Baptist was also circumcised and named eight days after his birth. We saw that in Luke 1:59. Mary and Joseph, who would have organized his circumcision, were ensuring that all of the law's requirements were fulfilled. Jesus was born under the law and therefore submitted to the requirements of the law. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Men, and this might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable here, but men, you do not have to be circumcised in the fulfillment of the Old Testament serial law because Jesus fulfilled that for you. Because it all pointed to him. For both John the Baptist and Jesus, circumcision was an external requirement that pointed to their entrance into Israel's covenant community. For both John and Jesus and for, both, for all of those who were circumcised, there is no intrinsic spiritual value. It was ceremonial, legal obedience. The importance of circumcision was that it pointed ahead to the circumcision of the heart through the effectual work of the Holy Spirit in causing someone to be born again. Romans 2.29 Here's an interesting thing. All of the Old Testament ceremonial law, all of the, the shadows and types pointed to Jesus. Now think about where I'm going with this. So Jesus' circumcision pointed to him. John needed a circumcised heart. John the Baptist needed a circumcised heart. But Jesus did not need a circumcised heart. Jesus is the one whose perfect obedience enabled the circumcision of John's heart and the circumcision of all of our hearts to take place. As Bruce Ray said in a sermon on this text, the circumcision of Jesus shows that Christ came into the world because of sin. He continues, Circumcision calls our attention to our origin as sinners and declares the necessity of removing the defilement of the flesh, and thus the necessity of new birth and new life. Well, then that also takes us to the, the naming of Jesus. Remember that both Jesus' Jesus's name and John's name were revealed to their parents by the angel Gabriel prior to their birth. In fact, prior to their conception. In John's case, it was to his father, Zechariah, Luke 1.13. In Jesus' case, it was to his mother, Mary, Luke 1.31. Mary and Joseph are now faithfully obeying the Lord's command that would have been given through Gabriel just as Zechariah had done with John. Yet again, we see a key difference. 
Just think about the names. We talked about this before. John's name means Yahweh is gracious. John experienced Yahweh's saving grace just like every other believer, just like this John. But Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Jesus did not need to experience the salvation of Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Of course, he has other names as well. We, we, we see the inclusion of the, the visitation of the angel of the Lord to, to Joseph, as, where the angel declared to Joseph, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Repeatedly in Luke's gospel account, especially in the parables, we see that Jesus came, came to seek and to save the lost. So his name reveals his person and his ministry. Jesus is Yahweh and he came to save his people. Isaiah gives us several other names of Jesus or titles of Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 7.14, you should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Isaiah 9.6, his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the name that he took in his incarnation is Jesus, Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves, but is he your savior? Do you know Jesus, as the Puritans said, experimentally? Do you have personal experience with Jesus? J.C. Philpot, the 19th century Anglican who became a particular Baptist, declared, a man must have salvation as an internal reality as a known, enjoyed, tasted, felt, and handled possession, or he will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you know Jesus? Or more importantly, does Jesus know you? I shudder to consider those to whom Christ will declare, people who thought they were serving God, but, but Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. May those words never be spoken in reference to any one of us here. Well, in verse 22, the family now travels to Jerusalem. It's the time of Mary's purification again, according to the law of Moses. Leviticus 12, 1-5 speaks of this. After the birth of a son, a woman was ceremonially unclean for seven days with a further 33 days that she must not touch anything holy. And times were doubled for the birth of a daughter. The situation here gives, gives, uh, uh, gives way to a second aspect of the ceremonial law, the, the presentation or the dedication of Jesus to the Lord. Again, references made of the law of the to the law of the Lord, verse twenty-three. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Luke is paraphrasing there several verses from Exodus, Exodus, particularly Exodus uh, thirteen two and twelve. There would have been a, a five shekel redemption price paid for Jesus, speaking about in spoken about in Numbers eighteen fifteen and following. But just think for a moment about this dedication of the Lord. Jesus is being dedicated to the Lord. Jesus is being set apart as holy unto himself. Jesus is the holy God. Jesus is the Lord. Well, then Luke goes back to discuss Mary's purification. 
Yet again, we, we have a reference to the law of the Lord. Verse 24. At the time, so at the end of the time of purification, she was to, to offer a lamb, and if she was too poor for a, a, a lamb, a dove or a pigeon was substituted. Leviticus uh, 12, 6 to 8. And Mary and Joseph gave the offering of the poor. One bird was to be a burnt offering, and the other was to be a sin offering. And again, apparently Mary and Joseph were, were poor. They were the very kind of people that Jesus came to save. Luke 1, verses 52 and 53. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This is from Mary's Magnificat and, and we'll reference this verse again a little bit later on when we talk about, about Simeon's prophecy, his nunc dimittis. Jesus, who had left the riches of heaven, came into poverty on earth. We can't fathom that kind of, of humility. As Jesus came, again, not into the houses of royalty, but to simple, humble, poor parents. But as we think about Jesus' submission, he submitted himself to the whole law for our sakes. Now again, think about the things that, that take place in this passage. True, true it's, his, it's his parents who are the ones who are being obedient. The events that take place here, the circumcision, naming, purification, presentation, and consecration are, are all done by Jesus' parents. So you could say here that, that Jesus' dedication is his parents' dedication. But all of this is necessary for our salvation. Jesus had to fulfill all all of God's law for his people. In God's sovereign plan, he chose to come into a family with two devout parents who would be faithful to the requirements of the ceremonial law on his behalf. But especially think for a moment about the animal sacrifices. Think about the blood of, of those two birds, the, the, the sin offering and the burnt offering. The blood of those two birds pointed to Jesus. Their blood sacrifice pointed to Jesus' blood sacrifice on the cross. Jesus submitted to the curse of the law for covenant breakers at a fulfillment of the covenant of redemption, the intra-Trinitarian covenant whereby the Father and the Son planned to redeem a people for himself. And he submitted to it for us. And all of it shows, even though the people appear to be the, the principal actors, they show that it is all about Jesus. Jesus is greater. Well, now let's move on to S Simeon's declaration in verses 25 to 35. We're now told that there was a man named Simeon living in Jerusalem. Now, the name Simeon means God has heard. Again, this points to a theme that we're, that's really throughout the book of, of Luke, that the theme of God's faithfulness in the fulfillment of his promises. We really aren't given very many details about Simeon's life. Again, this is the only place in the Bible where he's even mentioned. This is something that's seen commonly, again, in Luke. Snapshots of individuals and how they relate to Jesus. What's important about Simeon here is, is told to us. We have five key details. He was righteous and he was devout. 
He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and most importantly for this narrative, it had been revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now there's speculation that Simeon was a priest because of his association with the temple. And I'd always pictured Simeon as, as elderly based on the fact that he says he's ready to die after seeing Jesus. But, but that's mere speculation too. We, we just don't have that detail. Simeon was righteous, which means he was obedient to the law. He was devout, meaning that he was, was careful and faithful in his religious duties. He was awaiting the consolation of Israel. He was looking forward to the, the anticipating the, the fulfillment of God's promised Messiah. He, he lived in the expectation that God would indeed fulfill his promises to his people. Simeon, we're also told, was blessed with the Holy Spirit who is said to be upon him. Now the verb that's there points to an ongoing dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this work here, this ministry of the Holy Spirit, helps us to anticipate that the Spirit is going to be involved here in the coming passage. All of these details, all of these, these, these things that, that, that talk about the, the, the righteousness and the, the godliness and the, the, the indwelling of the Spirit of Simeon point to his credibility, to his credibility as a witness a witness to the person and ministry of the Messiah. Again, we're given these, these details here not so that we will revere Simeon. We're given these details so that we will see that Simeon's witness is trustworthy as he speaks about the Messiah. The tide had gone out on faith in the time of Israel during at this, the season of Christ's birth. Most of the religious leadership was, was legalistic and ritualistic, and the people followed suit. Yet here was Simeon, faithfully obeying and worshiping God. In Simeon, we see that God was preserving a people for himself, for his purposes. Can't you and I take comfort in that during this, this time of apostasy? Like the Lord told Elijah in 1 Kings 19.18, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now whether, there, whether or not there are 7,000 in this city, I don't know. But rest assured, the Lord is preserving some Simeons. Heaven had been silent for 400 years. And now the Lord is speaking. Now this next detail is very unique and is specific to Simeon. I can't think of anyone else in Scripture who, who receives a similar promise. That the Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he sees the Lord's Christ, before he sees the Messiah, the Anointed One. The scene is now set for an amazing testimony as to who Jesus is and what he is going to do. Simeon is led by the Holy Spirit into the temple, so he's there at the precise moment when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in. Now, it it's, would have been in the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women because, because Mary, as a woman, would not have been able to go any further into the, the central parts of the temple. But this passage here centers, again, as, as Daniel Bach tells us, not on the parents, 
but on a revelation of the Messiah that is given in the temple. He says, while Jesus is brought into, while Jesus is brought into the, brought to God for dedication, God testifies to Jesus, the Messiah, through the prophet Simeon. So this meeting between Jesus and Simeon is an appointment set by God. As we're told again, Mary and Joseph are in the temple to do for Jesus according to the custom of the law. Now just think about this for a moment. This is the first time that Jesus in his incarnation comes into the temple. Now he's going to return again repeatedly through his life and his ministry. In fact, in the next passage, we'll see Jesus back in the temple. This is a partial fulfillment of the promise that we've referred to many times already from Malachi 3.1, that the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. Now, of course, we are waiting for the full fulfillment of that prophecy to his return. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Malachi 3.2 But now the Messiah has come into the temple. And so again, the, the expectation builds. The, the excitement mounts. And again, we see God's promise fulfilled. Specifically here to Simeon. However, this promise is fulfilled in a way that even Simeon could not have imagined. Simeon doesn't just get to see the Messiah. Simeon gets to hold the Messiah in his arms. Imagine holding the one who holds your salvation in his hands. Simeon is overwhelmed with joy. He blesses God and he breaks into a hymn of praise, the third and final hymn of praise that we see in the birth narrative. Notice at the beginning of verse 29 that who he's addressing in this hymn. He's addressing this hymn to the Lord. Simeon is addressing the one who he is holding in his arms. Like the hymns of praise from chapter 1, this hymn is named according to the opening words in Latin, nunc dimittis, which means now let depart. Now that he has seen the promised Messiah according to God's personal promise, Simeon is ready to die. He can die in peace. Like the testimony of the angels in 2.14, the Messiah brings peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Simeon declares himself to be God's servant. He's, he's acknowledged that he exists to do God's will. He knows that it's not about him. Simeon's mission of, of waiting and watching is accomplished. His eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. Verse 30. Again from Daryl Bach. Luke is declaring that salvation comes and God comes. Because Jesus, the Messiah, has come. Jesus Christ is the instrument of the Lord's salvation. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Verse 31, the Lord has prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's no secret what God has been doing. It's, it's, it's not, wasn't done in hiding, but was in plain view. Is even if we think about all through the Old Testament, how, how Israel was set up to be an example of God's electing grace. 
And how all the surrounding nations were meant to watch and see who God is by the way that he deals with his people. But there's something that would have been shocking here for the nation of Israel. Again, it's, it should have been shocking to them because it was actually there throughout the Old Testament as well. But for the first time, we're seeing this in Luke. That is not just Israel that's in view. Again, we said repeatedly that it started with Israel, but God's plan is not just for Israel. The Lord's salvation is in the presence of all peoples. This is, again, a striking new focus, one that we see throughout Luke's gospel account, but, but most poignantly in Acts. Salvation is not just for Jews. Gentiles are included as well. Salvation is for every people, from every tribe and tongue and nation. God has been preparing his plan of salvation even before creation. When in eternity past, according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, he decreed that the Son would take on human flesh and die on a cross. Acts 2.23, when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. Well, Simeon continues this inclusive message in verse 32. The Messiah is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The, the light of God's salvation was now revealed to the Gentiles. In God's providence, at this very moment, Gentiles were trampling the feet of Jerusalem. The Roman invaders would have a ringside seat for the events of Jesus' life and ministry, and especially of his crucifixion. Friends, do not underestimate the depth and the breadth of God's providence. It is intricate beyond our understanding and completely comprehensive, including absolutely everything that takes place in his creation. So again, the Messiah is, is here as a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. The Messiah is also a light for glory to the Lord's people, Israel. Paul speaks of the privilege of Israel in Romans 9, 4, and 5. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them beyond, belong the patriarchs, and from the race, according to the flesh, who is the Christ, who is over all, blessed forever. Amen. Don't forget God's promises to Israel. Paul will go on in Romans 11 to explain that at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. The partial hardening has come upon Israel, but there is a future for elect ethnic Israel because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Isaiah 45, 25 says, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Well, in another parallel to John's birth account here with, with Simeon's prophecy, we see that it's much like Zechariah's. Because we, we have a, a righteous man who's involved in, in temple worship, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God here is fulfilling his promises to both men. 
I. Howard Marshall points out that, that as the giving of John's name was followed by a prophetic statement combining praise to God and an indication of the child's destiny, we, we saw that in, in the Benedictus of Zechariah, so the, the naming and the dedication of Jesus is followed by similar statements. But think about, about how much greater the statements are in, with reference to Jesus than they were with reference to John. So, so the, the Nuncdimitus repeats themes of the, of the other hymns that we've seen so far, but, but it enlarges them. God is acting to bring salvation for Israel through the Messiah. And Simeon enlarges the scope of the ministry of the Messiah. He will save, we're told here for the first time in, in Luke, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And Simeon specifies that the Messiah is here now. He's here in Jesus Christ. And Joseph and Mary marvel at Simeon's prophecy. And Simeon now turns and addresses them. First he blesses both of them, but then he continues to prophesy, speaking specifically to Mary. Verse 34, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. This is another echo of, of a verse that I mentioned earlier. Mary's Magnificat, Luke 1, 52, that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. In Isaiah chapter 8, the Messiah is spoken of as a stone of stumbling and as a rock of offense. Verse 15 says that many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Paul picks up on this image in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, your response to Jesus determines whether you will be one who rises or one who falls. Again, we see a sign, as we've seen repeatedly in the birth narrative. Jesus is a sign. Jesus is a sign that is opposed. Some are going to resist him. They're going to resist him sharply. Jesus brings a, a point of division based on one's response to him. And that division is going to begin quite early in his ministry, in, in the synagogue, in his hometown, in one of maybe possibly his, his first sermons. He, results in people trying to kill him in Luke 4, 28 and 29. And interestingly, at that time, it's, it's over his message of God's salvation to the Gentiles. And people are going to find many more reasons to oppose him. And that this opposition is a sign of God's work through him. As we've seen throughout redemption history, that, that the enemies of God have been opposing God and the people of God. Well, then Simeon gives Mary some news that will affect her powerfully and personally. He tells her that a sword will pierce through her own soul. That the sword that is pictured here is a, a large, two-edged, broad sword. Several times throughout Jesus' ministry, his choice will cause her pain. 
We'll see an example of that even next week. But the sword will most painfully pierce Mary's soul as the crown of thorns pierces Jesus' skin. As the nails pierce his hands and his feet as the spear pierces his side. And with that prophecy to Mary, Simeon's work is complete. And he says, no more. Salvation comes at a massive price to Mary, at a massive cost. But it is God himself who will pay the greatest price. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and gave up his life as God's just punishment for his people who broke God's moral law. Yet on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, achieving victory over sin and death. As we reflect on Simeon's prophecy here, again, he's the one who is speaking. We, we don't see Jesus here as a baby doing anything, but again, he is doing everything. Simeon's fear of death was conquered by the one who conquered death. Death is a powerful enemy, and one day, unless the Lord tarries or comes first, Death will take you too. Do you fear death? If you are here as a Christian, take heart because Christ's death has conquered your death. What else do you need to fear? Have you seen God's salvation? Have your eyes seen the Lord's salvation. Brothers and sisters, you can die in peace because God has fulfilled his promises to you and because God will fulfill every promise that is yet to be fulfilled. And until that time, you must watch and wait. One day, your blessed hope will arrive. Jesus will return. God has been faithful to his promises to Simeon, and God will be faithful to fulfill his promises to you as well. Next we see Anna's thanksgiving in verses 36 to 38. These few verses describe another faithful person who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But this is another divine appointment. Anna, whose name means grace, has been placed here by the sovereign God at this particular moment for his particular purpose. Like with Simeon, we're given a few details about, about Anna, more than we were given with Simeon, but still not very much. Here we see, again, one of Luke's continual focal points that we've seen, that we've seen already, how women respond to Jesus in faith. We saw this, didn't we, repeatedly with Mary and Elizabeth. Now you need to, to understand just, just how, how countercultural this focus on the faithfulness of women was at this time. Simeon, or sorry, Anna rather, we're told, was a prophetess. Like Simeon, she had a prophetic ministry. 
Now again, as you said with Simeon, that, that heaven had been silent for 400 years. There, there had been no prophet. But now God was beginning to speak. Now whether or not this was her first prophecy, we don't know. But this is certainly the, the only one that's recorded for us in Scripture. We're told that she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Phanuel or, or Peniel means face to face with God. What an appropriate name. Because she herself would be face to face with God. She was married for only seven years and then lived for a long time as a widow. Now given the fact that marriage in that culture usually took place around the age of, of 13 or 14, she was then probably widowed by her early 20s. And the text is, is unclear here whether she was a widow until the age of 84 or whether she was a, a widow for 84 years. So she was either an elderly woman or a very elderly woman. But either way, her, her agedness is, is presented to show that she was one who was to be respected in that culture. She lived as a, as a long time, as, for a long time as a widow, continually in the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. Just as an aside, can that be said of you? Of course, we're, we're not in the temple. As the church, we are the temple. But are you constantly worshiping with the church? Are you seeking opportunities to gather together with the saints? Or, or are you being selfish with your time? Do you see coming together as a church a, a hindrance that gets in the way of what you really want to do? Do you rush out of here on Sunday after the service, not spending time in fellowship with the saints? Well, Anna was totally focused on worshiping God. Her life was full of worship and self-denial. Now, these are, are definitely points of, of praise for Anna, but once again, the point isn't Anna. Jesus is greater. The point is, is her reliability as a witness. Like with, with Simeon, ultimately it's about her credibility to witness to the person and the ministry of the Messiah. Like Simeon, she too is, is testifying to the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that the, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, Malachi 3.1. Like Simeon, Anna first gives thanks to God. But she doesn't just, just address Mary and Joseph, she spreads the good news. Like the shepherds before her, she became an evangelist. She was there providentially, like Simeon, at this, important, at this important moment for a particular purpose, to serve God. In a parallel statement to what we saw from Simeon, that the Messiah was the consolation for Israel, Anna sought out those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So there was, as we see again, a faithful remnant who are trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord. They're eagerly, eagerly anticipating His coming. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. He fulfills the hopes of God's people. Are you hoping and praying for the Lord's return? Do you eagerly look forward to, to fellowship with Christ in heaven? 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up 
for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Do you love the Lord's appearing? Do you pray, come Lord Jesus? Or are you focused instead of the cares and the things of this life? Well, finally and briefly, we see the family's return in verses 39 and 40. This section forms an inclusio with verses 20 to 24. The family has left the temple and now returns home. Again, the attention is, our attention is brought back to their obedience to the law. They have fulfilled the requirements of the law of the Lord. Again, the ceremonial law is, is in view. We're reminded here of the fact that Jesus grew up in a home where the Lord rules. And through here, the, the, the efforts of his parents, he fulfilled the ceremonial law in his place. Of course, he's going to, to focus all of his life on obedience to all of God's commands. But again, it's, it's said here, it's the law of the Lord. It's his law. It all pointed to him. This serves as a this passage here, this part of it serves as a tradition, as a transition to where we're going to see Jesus next when he's 12 years old, back in the temple. So we're told that he grew and became strong. This testifies to his, his humanity. He was truly God, but he's also truly man. He's filled with wisdom. Now, now, this is a mystery to us, but in his humanity, he grew in his understanding of God's will. He displayed growth, both physically and spiritually. Jesus, Jesus and his progress continued to progre progress perfectly. But ours never does, does it? Our spiritual growth never follows a, a perfect trajectory. But Jesus experienced everything that we experience in this life, yet was without sin. He had a human nature, but was sinless. And with this, when we consider his, his physical and his, his spiritual growth, I, I think of, of our children. As, as we watch our children, we, we don't see them grow day by day. It's, it's imperceptible. But then all of a sudden you say, whoa, what happened? Your shoes don't fit. And the same is, is true of us spiritually sometimes, isn't it? That, we, that our growth is, is imperceptible. I, I see this as I, as I talk with, with people in the congregation, and I, I see the ways that, that you are growing. And I see the way that, that you are, are gradually, by God's grace, overcoming sin. You are, are growing spiritually. You are being sanctified. You are growing in, in wisdom and in stature. So as this passage closes, we, the, the scene is set for the, the final event of the introduction, this birth narrative of Jesus. Again, next time we see him, he's going to be 12 years later, back in the temple. As we think about, about this passage, we see these responses of this, these people who trusted in the faithfulness of God and, and worshipped him for it and were in turn faithful themselves. How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to, to the Savior, to the keeper of the covenant, to this perfectly holy God-man? 
The focus in this passage is, is all on Jesus. Others are carrying the action, but he is the one who this passage is about. His parents have him circumcised and name him, but both point to his mission. Mary's purification quickly gives way to Jesus' dedication. Simeon's peace comes through Jesus' conflict. Anna testifies, but her testimony is about Jesus. His parents fulfill the law of the Lord, and it's, but it's ultimately Jesus Christ's law, and he's the one who ultimately fulfills it. Romans 8, 22 and 23. We read that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, in the power of the Holy Spirit, were anticipating the first incarnation of Christ. And we as his people also indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. Anticipate his return. Jesus came suddenly to the temple when few were expecting him. There were many more people in the temple that day. Precious few had any idea of what was taking place. The Lord will return one day and on that day Everyone will know. He will gather some to himself, but others he will cast into eternal darkness. How do you respond to the light of Jesus' coming? Have you come to him in repentance and in faith? Have you put your, put your confidence in Christ and in Christ alone, not in your works or your righteousness or your anything, but as your focus on Him? Do you understand and are you growing in your understanding that Jesus is greater? That Jesus is greater than everything? That Jesus is greater even than you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the sovereign plan of redemption. That everything that was required for the salvation of your people was according to your omnipotent wisdom. And everything that was required for the salvation of your people is accomplished through your omnipotent work. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your saving grace. We praise you, Lord, for the good news that you are greater, that you are greater than our little desires. You are greater than our sin. Lord Jesus, you are greater than all. Help us, Lord, to see who you are and to worship you for who you are and all you have done. We pray this in your strong and holy name. Amen.